Well, hello there, and welcome to the iFormerX podcast. My name is Stuart Haynes, and I'm the editor-in-chief of iFormerX, and I also get to host this podcast. iFormerX is an online community of practice for ambulatory care and community pharmacists, and our goal is to empower practitioners to apply the best evidence to patient care decisions in ambulatory care settings. Now, while evidence from research studies is clearly important to making well-informed decisions, a great clinician takes into consideration a number of variables, not just the results of randomized controlled trials. Indeed, patient-specific factors like values and preferences, socioeconomic circumstances, prior experiences, and beliefs about medications are critically important to shared decision-making. And institutional factors, such as formularies, product availability, personnel expertise, and access to specialists and specialty services also must be factored into decisions and recommendations. So that's why I'm so delighted to announce a new series of commentaries and podcasts on iFormerX. This year, we're experimenting with a new format involving complex patient cases. The cases will be based on real patients, and the essential features and facts of the case will be described by an ambulatory care pharmacy practice resident. We'll also invite a panel of experts to tell us about what they're thinking as we hear the case, what additional information they would like to have, and what they would potentially do in the case, including what they think are the best treatment options. These case discussions are intended to be interactive, and our panelists might not always agree, but we hope you, our loyal iFormerX members, will find the discussion informative and helpful in your work caring for patients. So, for our inaugural complex patient case discussion, I've invited Dr. Elizabeth Salisbury, a PGY2 ambulatory care resident from Lifespan in Rhode Island, to develop a case based on her experiences during her residency. Her case, as you'll soon learn, involves a young woman who has been referred to the pharmacist to explore contraceptive options. So Elizabeth, welcome. It's great to have you as a first-time contributor to iFormerX. Thank you, Stuart. I'm really excited to be here and helping with launching the first iFormerX patient case podcast. Thank you for having me. And now to our panel of experts. And who better to talk about contraception than Ashley Meredith, Rebecca Stone, and Sally Raffi. Dr. Meredith is an ambulatory care specialist who's on faculty at Purdue University and has been a frequent contributor to iFormerX. She recently authored a systematic review for the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy about pharmacists prescribed hormonal contraception. And her co-author is our second guest, Rebecca Stone from the University of Georgia. Like Ashley, Becca has a keen interest in women's health and has given numerous presentations and authored papers about the pharmacist's role in contraception. And our third panelist is Sally Raffi, who is a pharmacist specialist at UC San Diego Health and the founder of the Birth Control Pharmacist, which is a community of practice for pharmacists who want to provide contraceptive and family planning services to their patients. And if you haven't visited the Birth Control Pharmacist website, I strongly encourage you to do so. It's an amazing resource. So Ashley, Becca, Sally, you're awesome. Thanks for agreeing to participate in today's case discussion. 
Thanks so much for having us, Stuart. I love getting the chance to chat with Becca and Sally related to contraception and reproductive health. Thanks for inviting me, Stuart. I'm so excited to be here today. This is such an important topic. It's a pleasure to join you all from San Diego and get to work with my lovely colleagues, Ashley and Becca. So Elizabeth, why don't you get us started and introduce the case? Absolutely. So this case is from a patient that I had the privilege of interacting with during my PGY2 ambulatory care pharmacy residency. The setting for the interaction took place at a family medicine clinic. The clinic is in an urban area of Rhode Island, and most patients served by this clinic are those facing many barriers to their care, such as transportation, as well as some financial issues. The patient, J.S., is a 23-year-old female, and she was presenting to clinic for an initial pharmacy consultation. She was referred by her PCP to the ambulatory care pharmacist for contraceptive counseling. At her most recent visit with the PCP, which occurred about three weeks ago, she did request to have a pregnancy test and did report that she has two new sexual partners since her last visit. Furthermore, some symptoms at that time would include vaginal yeast infection, which was confirmed by a wet prep. Fluconazole and ulipristal acetate were prescribed. She presented to clinic initially for an encounter for contraceptive management. This patient did state that she's leaning more towards the pill. She's taken a contraceptive, oral contraceptive medication previously in eighth grade. So several years back now, the patient did use her friends. So a non-prescribed birth control. It was an oral hormonal contraceptive. She's unsure the name. She did abruptly stop taking this, however, when her parents discovered the pack, and since then, the patient has not taken any form of hormonal contraceptive. However, she is pretty open to trying anything that we may think would be most beneficial. She did state that she does not consistently use condoms. However, as we're familiar, sometimes our appointments don't stick to what they were scheduled for. She stated that she's having some vaginal itch symptoms, which she attributes to potentially a yeast infection. JS does have a complex gynecologic history, including an uncomplicated spontaneous abortion, which occurred earlier this year. Her current medications include sertraline, 100 milligrams every day, a woman's multivitamin daily, as well as dicyclamine, 10 milligram capsules, one to two capsules up to four times daily, and the triamcinolone acetonate 1% cream, which she reports she uses as needed, although it's prescribed daily. So I'm wondering what some initial thoughts are on this case. If there's any additional information that I should obtain at this time, or any questions to ask, or perhaps some labs that you would like to be ordered for this patient. I can jump in with some initial reflections on your presentation. First of all, it sounds like the patient is coming in to see us for contraception. So that's wonderful that seeking out this care for themselves. And so it'll really just be our job now to determine medical eligibility for the different methods and provide the information so that they can make an informed choice on what they'd like to use. Some things that I noticed you mentioned in your presentation 
um, that maybe as we're writing the note, we can potentially leave out. I wouldn't necessarily say this patient has a complex history. And so I think we can probably leave that out of the note just to make it as objective as possible. Now, looking at her birth control history, she did have a brief uh, experience with a pill some years ago. And of course, we're not going to try to figure out what it was, but I'd be curious to hear what was her experience with that. Did she like it? Is she, does she have positive associations with that particular method? And many years have since passed. Is she still living with her parents? And would she still be seeking something that she could potentially use without them finding it or becoming aware of it? So those would be some of my initial reactions for, for the case. And the good news about labs, we really don't need any when it comes to evaluating eligibility for birth control. So no need to worry about ordering any labs. However, I would like you to measure her blood pressure so we can use that information in determining what she's eligible to use. We did gather a blood pressure at this visit. Her blood pressure was 120 over 72. Thanks for that additional information, Elizabeth. Based on your initial patient information you presented, my mind starts to go a thousand different ways with all the questions and different things to consider for identifying what product is going to be the, the the best choice for this patient in particular. So you mentioned her blood pressure. Do we happen to have a recent weight for this patient? Yes. So the most recent weight that we have for her was taken at this visit. She's 103.3 kilograms, so about 227 pounds. And then along with that, do we happen to have a, a height either measured or self-reported? The self-reported height for her is 168.6 centimeters, so approximately 66 inches. Great. So I think about things like height and weight, so I can consider the patient's body mass index or BMI. And is this going to drive some of the decision-making regarding what products and side effects and, and potential outcomes we need to consider? I think one of the other big questions I would ask a a patient when we're talking about birth control is, what is she looking for in a product? Is she looking primarily for pregnancy prevention or are there other potential benefits that she's really looking to, to gain? So kind of driving back to her current medications, the dicyclamine and the triamcinolone cream that she's using, do we know what the indication for those are? For the dicyclamine, patient reported she was taking as needed for stomach cramping. Prime Sunalone is being used as needed to assist with her eczema. She only uses it once again as needed. So when she's undergoing a flare at the time of the appointment, she was not. Um, okay, great. Thank you. And then one of the other other thoughts that I might have here is you mentioned that her last visit about three weeks ago, she requested a pregnancy test and had some yeast infection symptoms and things that were being treated. So what was the result of that pregnancy test? That pregnancy test was negative. Awesome. Okay. So then I would also want to know the date of her last menstrual period, especially if she did end up taking the Eulopristol that was prescribed at that last visit. In terms of the last menstrual period, that information was not gathered at this visit, so I'm not sure, but that's something that I would definitely want to ask the patient at this time. She did take the Eulopristol that was prescribed at the last visit. 
Elizabeth, thank you again for presenting this patient case. The few things that I think about that haven't already been discussed are what the patient's plans are for her reproductive health. So she mentioned that she had a pregnancy test and a spontaneous abortion earlier this year. When, if ever, does she desire to be pregnant again? And what does that look like for her? When I was talking with the patient, she mentioned that she does not wish to be pregnant right now and for the foreseeable future. I think maybe looking at some more long-term options. However, that wasn't addressed just yet at the appointment. Does this patient want to have a regular menstrual cycle? Not that I'm aware of. It seemed more so like she wanted the security of knowing that she was having a period, but it didn't necessarily have to be every single month. And then the last thing that I would confirm are potential risk factors for thrombosis, just to make sure that the medical history we have is complete. So asking if she has ever had a blood clot, asking about smoking status, smoking history, and migraines with aura. So no migraines with aura. However, she did state that she has some migraines that we explained what an aura is, and that was denied. This patient has no prior history of a deep vein thrombosis, no family history of bleeding or clotting disorders, and she is actively smoking. She smokes, I think it was about several cigarettes a day right now, and she has been doing that for the past couple of years. All right. I think we've got a lot of information in this case, and there's probably other things that some in our audience might want to ask about as well. But I'm wondering what you all think are the contraceptive options you might be considering at this point, at least what you think this patient is eligible for, and what do you view as the pros and cons of each of those options for this particular patient? So what I'm thinking about selecting a contraceptive, I kind of think of three things. So the first is what's medically appropriate for this patient. And the good news is for this patient, all of her options are medically appropriate. So she doesn't have any absolute contraindications to any of the hormonal or non-hormonal methods that we have available. And then after that, I think about efficacy and I try and talk about those options from most to least effective and then find the option that meets the patient's contraceptive and non-contraceptive needs and it optimizes efficacy. So is one of the more effective products. So starting from most effective, since they're all medically appropriate, the most effective options for her are going to be the arm implant or an IUD, either the copper IUD or a levonorgestrel containing IUD. These options may all be desirable for this patient if she's trying to maintain privacy or living with her, her family members whom she doesn't want to know she's using contraception. So all of these are discrete options and don't require daily administration from the user. Whether or not she wants a menstrual cycle is important. So the levonorgestrel IUD induces amenorrhea in many women, whereas the arm implant tends to have irregular bleeding and spotting, whereas the copper IUD doesn't change menstrual cycle from baseline in regularity, although it may make it a little heavier. So a lot of the differences between these products come down to patient preference and, and what they would like their menstrual cycle to be like. Since this patient is eligible to use all the methods, I would use a visual tool 
to present all their options to them, like a birth control methods guide that has images of the different methods, the effectiveness, the hormones, and the frequency of use. And that way, all the information's there and use that as a guide as I'm verbally presenting the information. I think you'll find that really helpful. And before deciding which methods to present to her first or which ones to discuss in more detail, I would really ask the patient more information about what's important to them. Are having regular periods important, but also is the effectiveness important or side effects or what factors are really going to be important to her so that I can use that information in informing my counseling. And then it'll be really up to her to tell me what are the pros and cons for her in terms of the different methods and which one would work well for her. And I think for me, when I look specifically at this patient and I consider all the different options that are available, there are a couple that stick out to me, at least that have important characteristics to discuss with the patient. So one of the things that I would look at is her weight and her BMI. So based on her current weight and height, her BMI is about 36. And so technically, the contraceptive patches are contraindicated in people with a BMI above 30 due to decreased efficacy and a controversial increased risk of thrombotic events. And so that would be something to consider. I would be sure to discuss that with her. And then I'd also think about things like she currently has vaginal complaints. She previously was just treated for a yeast infection. So perhaps the prescription vaginal gel, which goes by the brand name Fexi, may not be the most appropriate along with the vaginal ring considering a potential increased risk of of vaginal irritation or or localized side effects. So those would be some of the very patient-specific factors that I would make sure that we're having conversation around before really deciding what method is most appropriate for her. And given her history of multiple sexual partners, I would also want to make sure to discuss the importance of using a barrier method such as a condom to prevent STIs and HIV. So all of that combined with with everything we've discussed would be part of my conversation that I would have about what options to consider in in making a choice with this patient. I don't know if we want to discuss this, but the patches, I know in the labeling is contraindicated for that BMI, but not in the CDC guidelines. So I think it really comes down to risk benefit. And I know it's not something that a patient even expressed interest in in particular, but maybe just to clarify I for think listeners. If I can say on this, the patient, we did steer away from the patch just based on her eczema. She wasn't in a flare right now. However, she was having somewhat frequent eczema flares. So I would be hesitant to use the patch on her. I think Sally's comment is great. Technically, with it being in the package insert, but the CDC doesn't use that as a contraindication. The package insert does put a limit, both a weight limit and a BMI recommendation on the patch, but the CDC doesn't carry that same recommendation. And they use a risk versus benefit evaluation. And if the patch is the right option for a particular patient based on other preferences, it is still used in women who are above that 198 pounds. We mentioned that this patient also had eczema, so she may be a poor candidate for the patch based on other reasons, but I would not exclude patch use for her based on weight alone. 
I think, you know, the discrepancy between what may be present in the package insert and product labeling and the recommendations presented by the CDC about the the benefits versus risks presents a real life clinical challenge where providers may not know which information is best to follow. That's an excellent point. And it, it's also a very important counseling point for the patient. You know, our patients deserve to know that this method may not be as effective for them as it would be in their peers who have a different body size. So it's a very important patient counseling point. But like Becca said, we would not withhold the method if that happened to be the patient's preferred method based on that alone, because it would not necessarily deem it unsafe for her to use, just less effective. We should probably clarify. So in the case of contraceptive eligibility, the CDC guidelines are the gold standard. As pharmacist clinicians, we would use those guidelines over what's in the package insert in all cases. And also, I want to ask you ladies as a group, I mean, we didn't specifically touch on the progesterone-only pill, the Depo-Provera shot. What do you guys think? I agree. We don't have to talk about all the options, but those are also good options. And I think a lot of times we think about pharmacists prescribing and think it's just combination pills, which is obviously very limiting. Yeah, I think Depo-Provera especially is interesting because it varies so widely from state to state as to whether or not it's permitted. And like you guys have mentioned before, it's discrete. It's once every three months. You don't have to come back. It might not be great for this patient because it can contribute to weight gain and she's already has a BMI greater than 30. But for a lot of women, this is a appealing option because it can be done subcutaneously at home or I am with a healthcare provider. Now, what about the patient's vaginal symptoms? What would you do about that? Um, I'm wondering if I should recommend any further testing to be ordered or could we treat it with something over the counter? or perhaps get our primary care provider to write a prescription for another fluconazole? What are some of your thoughts on that? Those are some great questions, Elizabeth, and we certainly want to make sure we're addressing the patient's complaints today, not just focusing on her her contraception. And so one of my first questions, either for you as the, the provider or for the patient, would be, did her symptoms initially resolve with her last dose of fluconazole, or have they been pretty consistent since that time? The patient stated that her symptoms resolved after taking the first dose of fluconazole. She never ended up taking the second dose, so she does still have one dose at home. She noted resolved itching for at least five to six days, and then she mentioned that she had gone to the beach earlier this week and had left her bathing suit on for a little bit longer than she had wanted to, and it was a wet bathing suit. And she also mentioned some discharge had appeared after that day at the beach. So to answer your question, there was a resolution of symptoms. Great. That's really helpful. So thinking about this patient in the context of my clinical setting and and the scope of my privileges that I have within my clinic, I would likely reach out to the PCP to let them know about the, the recurrence of the symptoms to see if there are other tests or other treatments that they would want to consider, such as additional STI testing, knowing that the patient has had two additional sexual partners this month, just to make sure that we're not missing something larger than a simple yeast infection. 
I also think in a patient with a BMI of 36, it might be worth checking for diabetes or prediabetes to see if that could be contributing to yeast infection as well. Thank you. And about three weeks ago, her glucose fasting was 132 at the time of her last appointment. A1C was 6.2. So I think that that's definitely reasonable to make sure that we're monitoring our blood sugar and, and trying to rule out potential diagnosis of diabetes as well here. Now, are there any other health issues or concerns that you think should be addressed with this patient at today's appointment? Or how about her next follow-up appointment at the clinic? In addition to the list of items that have been discussed so far, I would certainly make sure that we talk about condom use and routine STD screening. Make sure that we have her scheduled or up to date on all of her routine preventative health screenings, such as her pap smear, pelvic exam, breast exam. But we don't need to bring her back for the sole purpose of monitoring her contraception. That's something we would certainly invite and welcome, but it's not required. And I think in the context of what you shared, Elizabeth, related to her glucose values, that would raise some some concerns for me at this point. She's a, a young person. She has an elevated BMI. Her fasting glucose is impaired. I I would want to know what we can be doing and, and helping her now prevent the development of diabetes, knowing she has such a, a long time to live, assuming she, she maintains good health. I would want to make sure we're doing diabetes prevention as well to prevent those long-term complications. And what are some thoughts as well on her immunization history? Would you consider recommending HPV vaccine or any other vaccines at this point in time based on her age and maybe some potential risk factors? So I do think, given her age and her exposure to new sexual partners, if she has not been fully vaccinated against HPV, then that certainly could be something that would be of benefit to get protection across the full spectrum of of strains that are, are included within that vaccine. So definitely some benefits there. This encounter may also be an opportunity to talk to her about her tobacco use and assess whether or not she's ready to consider cessation. And at her current age, smoking doesn't affect our choices for her contraceptive options. But of course, as she gets older and we see increased thrombotic risk and cardiovascular risk with aging and smoking, then that changes what options might be medically appropriate for her too. I was just going to add that this is an opportunity for us to just review safe sex practices in general for this patient and talk about opportunities to enjoy uh, sexual activity without TD risks. And so could be not only talking about barrier methods in addition to internal condoms and external condoms, but dental dams and and other types of pleasure that could be achieved without the, the transmission risk there. I think that's a really good opportunity to, to speak with her if she's open to that. Absolutely. And I think overall, looking at this patient comprehensively, there's really a lot of opportunity here that we can make a positive impact on her. She also does struggle with generalized anxiety disorder. So maybe that's something that we consider there as well. 
So Elizabeth, Becca, Ashley, Sally, I'm so grateful that you all could participate in our discussion today. And honestly, I've, I've learned a lot. I'd love to hear what our audience thinks. Would you do something differently in this case? Are there additional pieces of information that you'd like to collect during the patient interview or perhaps labs that you'd order? Are there additional contraceptive options you'd consider or discuss with this patient specifically? Are there other healthcare issues that you think need to be addressed during this or perhaps in a future encounter? You can weigh in on this case by posting a comment on the iFormerX website. Only iFormerX members can post comments and use the interactive features on our website. So if you're not already a member of iFormerX, sign up today. It's free for health professionals, students, residents, and fellows. And if you'd like to get continuing education credit, for listening to this podcast, just click on the link posted below the case study on the iFormerX website. All you need to do is answer a few questions in the post-test and provide us some feedback regarding this program and our speakers. The University of Mississippi School of Pharmacy is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Pharmacy Education, ACPE, as a provider for continuing pharmacy education, and there's no fee for getting CE for this program. And lastly, before I sign off today, I want to thank Scott Milanowski, one of my colleagues here at the University of Mississippi. Scott wrote a great commentary for iFormerX and participated in a podcast about non-alcoholic fatty liver disease a few months ago, which was awesome. But he does the important behind-the-scenes work that enable us to offer continuing education credit for programs like this. Scott is detail-oriented, super reliable, very knowledgeable, and he has a twisted sense of humor. So it's great fun to work with him. Thank you, Scott. And I hope our partnership will continue for many years to come. Well, this is Stuart Haynes, Editor-in-Chief of iFormerX, signing off. Mm -hmm.